Hello and welcome to another episode of the Killing Times podcast. In this episode, I'm joined by American writer Ivy Pakoda, one of the most acclaimed and up-and-coming novelists in the US, and writer of three books, including the acclaimed Visitation Street and her latest book, Wanda Valley, which Michael Connolly said was destined to become a classic LA novel. Ivy, welcome to the Thanks podcast. Thanks so much. Now, I guess I should start by asking you, apart from the obvious, what is an LA novel? Wow, that's a really interesting question and uh, something that there is a lot of discussion about in Los Angeles. Um, LA is a pretty unknowable city. It's vast and very diverse and spread out and it doesn't have a center. It's comprised of a lot of neighborhoods that all have their own downtowns. So um, there's a lot of discussion of who gets LA best. Is it Joan Didion? Is it James Elroy? Is it Michael Connolly? Is it, you know, Nathaniel West? Um, and I think, you know, for me, an LA novel is a novel that addresses the diversity and the variety of the city, um, that addresses its weirdness and its unknowability, and a novel that addresses the struggle to need to know what LA is about. So, yeah. That's and how are you getting on with that? Because I've been to LA and it surprised me. Because I, I, we have this image from outsiders have this image of LA as the glitz, the glamour, the kind of hiking in the Hollywood Hills, the kind of clean streets of Santa Barbara and Santa Monica. Mm -hmm. And I went down, I, I was on a press trip. So I went downtown into downtown LA. And it had these magnificent old buildings, but they were kind of crumbling edifices, really. And then you had kind of dime stores and people in doorways. It was the duality of the place was pretty striking. Well, that's the original downtown of L.A. So in the 1920s, um, they moved the movie industry to Hollywood. Yeah. But before then... Broadway in downtown LA was where all the majestic theaters were, literally the majestic theater. And Charlie Chaplin built a theater there to premiere his own movies. And it was sort of this amazing, glamorous stretch of um, Los Angeles. And then when the movie industry moved to the West Side, um, it fell into disrepair. Um, so, well, downtown now, I don't know when you were there, is completely rebuilt. Um, it still has a lot of problems with homelessness and, um, you know, dereliction. But a, there's an Apple store and there's, you know, <laughs> right, there's okay. the gap. Um, but it, it's it's not as, even though I say that there those things are there, they're not quite as, um, it, it still is gritty. Um, so, you know, LA is weird. Like it took me forever to kind of figure out what it meant to be in Beverly Hills and be in Culver City and to be in downtown. Um, it's really strange and it's really hard to find your way around and, you know, because it's sprawling, right? It's it sprawling, doesn't. It feels huge. like there's no center to it. There is no center to it. Would um, that be right in saying that? I mean, yeah, there's no center, but there are central places that you can locate yourself on. Like, oh, it's on Fairfax, which is a north-south street, or it's on Highland, which is an important north-south right. street, and you know, it's on Santa Monica Boulevard, east-west, Melrose, east-west. So if you know your crosstown or north-souths, you kind of are well on your way. Okay, but there's no center. Um, you're from the east coast, right? Mm -hmm. So what what did you make of LA when you first got because you live in LA now right Yeah I'm from Brooklyn New York mm. and uh what did I make of it? I mean, gosh, I was so blindsided. I had this completely, I had two versions of LA. One from watching, well, they're both from watching television, you know. One was, it was like Beverly Hills 90210 and everyone would drive, which I love, is like my favorite thing ever. I loved yeah. 90210 growing up and 
they went to a high school where everyone drove a car and you parked your car and then you drove to the beach and went surfing. Let me tell you the impossibility of going surfing in the morning if you go to school in Beverly Hills. I okay. mean, those traffic, you'd never make it to class. Like, it's so insane. Um, <laughs> it's a total lie. Um, I... I was told that you go out and hang out in the neighborhood you live in. Um, I moved to Echo Park, which is kind of a hipster neighborhood. Um, very beautiful in the hills. And it just took me forever to figure out what L.A. was. You know, there are all these hills and then there's freeways. And then I started hanging out downtown and I was like, oh, this looks like New York. I need to move downtown immediately. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so you mentioned the word lie there um, in that uh, little story. Is LA one big lie? Is it a facade? Is it because uh, I say it has, I keep banging on this duality, um, and we'll get to uh, your book in a moment. But um, it, it, does it sell a lie? Do you think? I think that Through TV and film and well, I don't think that's Los Angeles's fault. I think that you know the movie industry is trade trades on lies. You know, it's trying to put like a shiny. Um, face on a lot of things and uh, you know the movie industry is trades and deception and to make things look better than they are or worse than they are and I think for a very long time the vision of Los Angeles that the movie industry perpetrated was a very sort of like um, anodyne version of like well I have to correct that because there's two versions. There's the sort of palm tree, wonderland, paradise version. But there's also noir. Like, noir comes from California. So, like, the shadows, the sunshine cast are dark and interesting. So, you know, it isn't a lie, but it's easy to be misled and deceived. And I think a lot of people come to California for this sort of, like, ideal of deception. Like, this, this deceptive ideal that things are easy and you're going to eat grapefruits and go to the beach and whatever. It's like... And you mentioned why, of course, and of course, the Black Dahlia and, and, and mm -hmm. the whole kind of idea that people came to L.A. to to make it, to right. make something of themselves. Right. right. And there's no reason that's going to happen. So then bad things happen. Yeah, yeah right, yeah. right. So then they find some, themselves in a hole and they can't yeah, get out and so exactly. on. So now Wonder Valley uh, has a really interesting premise, I think, and, and features multiple characters, um, all from different walks of life. Mm -hmm. Um, for those who haven't read it, can you tell us a little bit about the story and some of those sure. characters? So it's a, a multi-perspective novel which follows five characters in two different time periods, 2006 and 2010. And it takes place in two places, the High Desert, which is the Mojave Desert, uh, which is the desert outside of Los Angeles to the east by Joshua Tree National Park. And it takes place in Los Angeles and predominantly in Skid Row, which is the large sprawling homeless community in downtown. And it follows these five people and how their lives intersect in surprising and dangerous and often uplifting ways. So it's um, trying to make sense of two places that are not normally addressed in fiction and two places that are kind of misunderstood because they're considered inhospitable and joyless. But um, I think there's some joy there. So it's people and communities on the fringes of society. You said it better than I did. <laughs> okay, right. <laughs> um, but how how do these people come together? There's a random event, isn't there? Right. That? So um, the novel kicks off with a sort of my like total bite on a Don DeLillo novel, which is a <laughs> an event that unifies the entire city. Um, there's a naked man running through traffic during the morning commute. Now, if you live in LA, like the morning commute is the thing that it's, a, as we said, LA is a diverse, sprawling, crazy city of a million gazillion people, but everyone's united by one thing, which is morning traffic. Everyone sits in morning right. traffic. Everyone <laughs> listens to the radio yeah. and watches the traffic news. I mean, it's crazy. Um, it's the one equalizing factor in all of Los Angeles. So, um, 
Um, I decided to create an event in my novel that would unify the attention of the entire city at once. And that was a naked man running the wrong way against traffic in downtown, making the morning commute even worse. And this event is something that all the characters in the book are reacting to or um, have something to do with or, you know, are responsible for. It's really interesting because when I first heard the premise for this book a while back, uh, kind of lodged in the, in the brain. And then last week I was walking to work in my neighbourhood in North London. And um, there's a mentally ill guy that wanders the kind of streets. Not homeless, I don't think, but he you see him a lot, muttering and kind of obviously in, sometimes in distress, sometimes not. That morning he was walking down the street in the middle of the road, uh, you know, Kentish Town is not quite Los Angeles when it comes to traffic, but, you know, people were stuck in traffic. He was walking down the centre of the road completely naked with a little carrier bag and the police kind of were called and he got escorted into a little kind of little alleyway out of, you know, harm's way, so to speak. And But it kind of think, why? Why was he? Why was he? Di- now, obviously, he, he was a mentally ill guy. What happened that day? What happened to me? No, what happened to him? Like, why that well, day? Well, exactly. Yeah. Why was he doing that? What happened to him? Yeah. And I wondered, it's that whole kind of thing, that story of different perspectives, isn't it? Where you, there's the example given, you see a guy running down a street. Some people think, uh, are afraid of him because they think he's stolen something or is running away from someone. Or other people think different things. Well, that's exactly how I came up with the idea. Right, was, okay. uh, it's exactly that. Um, when I was in high school, um, a bunch of my friends were club kids, like in the old days of the club scene. Were you, they, not, were you not a club kid? Um, well, I tried to be, but I was also a really good athlete. But yeah, right, I was okay. more into bars. Like I kind of didn't okay. like clubs. I mean, they were in like the club scenes with like, you know, like Peter Gation, like they worked at, they were like in the real club scene. Right, like, okay. These were real, real club kids. Right. Um, Including that murderous club kid, that famous one. Oh, yeah, he was there too. Anyway, anyway, so, anyway. So well, I'm not Google that, every listeners. Names. Google Michael that Alec. One. You know, he killed <laughs> he killed his drug dealer and chopped him up. Anyway, so these people, I knew these people, and um, okay, there was a party one night, and one of them um, had done too many drugs, and he had a kind of psychic breakdown and ran across the Brooklyn Bridge naked and was hit by a car and killed. Wow. And um, then. So I heard about the story twice the next day. I heard about it from my friends who had been there that yeah. night when he ran across the bridge, and they were obviously incredibly upset. And then um, I heard about it from some women from my sports club. My I played squash, and these like preppy women who had been taking a morning jog had seen this guy, James, run across the bridge. And they were like completely disgusted. They're like, I mean, they were upset because he died, but they're like, oh, yeah. look at that dr- druggie running across the bridge. And Made assumptions straight right, away. Exactly. Right, exactly. I mean, he was, but also like some, something sad had happened. It wasn't just the drugs. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. So I thought, wow, it's amazing how, exactly what you said, like yeah. how this could be misinterpreted or reinterpreted or changed and how we see things through our own narrow perspective. And also how this one event had traversed from this all night party and come into the lives of these women on their morning job. Right, and I was like, right. And then I really, when I thought I wanted to write a book, you should never say prologue, but I wrote a prologue. I was like, a prologue <laughs> should be something that unites the entire story together. So I thought of the way the perspective switches in that you know, yeah. incident. Um, all the, your cast of characters that are drawn to this event um, are they running away from something or are they searching for something I think it's both I mean yeah. I think you know they're doing both those things and um, they're 
you're running away from your past or searching to atone for the mistakes of your past are sort of the same thing. Hmm. You know, they're just people who don't feel comfortable anywhere as so they're on the move all the time. Right. Yeah. Um, we're at the um, Festival of America, I think it's called, isn't it? Festival of America. Festival of America, beg your pardon. And Ivy was just part of a, a panel with Michael Farris Smith and uh, John Vigna, uh, which was great. Mm. And you spoke about redemption. And I find that really interesting. Do you... Uh, d- and you just rep- could you repeat your your feelings on redemption because yeah. it feels like especially in crime fiction and crime TV drama, there's redemption is the be all and end all. It's always yeah. the kind of the goal for the character. It's you know? so disappointing. I mean, <laughs> I, you know, I love crime fiction and I love mysteries, but you know, there's this, always this moment where the air goes out of the balloon where you're like, oh, they're just going to solve it and that's it. Like, yeah. you know, I'm not by nature a 100% crime novelist. I'm sort of interested in the things around a crime. But, you know, there are a lot of books about a down and out character and you just have this sense like halfway through, you're like this guy's just going to be redeemed. It's like, yeah. and I think that readers and the public are conditioned to see, you know, we always taught like a, a story involves the main character transforming. Like it's not a complete story. If they learn, don't learn something, if they don't progress. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's just crap because like, you know, redemption isn't always possible. You know, it's like a happy ending isn't always possible and is not always earned. And I was talking about Michael Ferris Smith's novel, um, Desperation Road in specific, because I read it in galleys and I was like, is he good? If he doesn't redeem this character, I'm going to be fine with it. He does, but it's completely earned. It completely makes sense. But it wasn't necessary, and that was the novel that really made me realize that I, I I think I have a very, at one point, had a very traditional view of what is required for redemption, right. or for a novel to be complete. But I think that it's it's just it's just conventional, and like, you know, not everyone's redeemed just because you start out as a criminal. You can learn and change and do a whole bunch of things, but you don't necessarily have to become a you no, know, because, priest. Because, you know? Yeah, right. You know, like, <laughs> <laughs> people people carry scars for in real life people carry scars people carry trauma for their entire life yeah right? and i think that we also have this like um idea when we write novels or read novels that like we have to sum everything up you know like yeah. just suggest that there's some kind of change or suggest you know we accomplished something but we don't need to see the white picket fence the house and the kids but i think this like need for redemption in books is just fallacious and like what uh, leads to stories that are just n- badly told so you think it may be quite a lazy narrative device i'm not sure or that it's it lazy become? i just think it's that it's conventional it's sort of what we expect readers to writers to do you know right. if you meet somebody and he's down and out well let's hope he you know Gets that job in the end, maybe, yeah, or, yeah. Or he was a murderer, but then he realized the error of his ways. Well, there are lots of ways that a murderer can change without suddenly real. I mean, obviously, murder is bad, but the, a, a different <laughs> type of change is better. Yeah. You know, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's that duality, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Again, you, you know, it's 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 kind of you can be good and you can be bad right. and you can be okay with being both those right. things, exactly. right? Because that's real life, I think. Right? Exactly. Um, now there's a commune in in Wonder Valley, right? And I'm interested in in why people join these communities and why it happens in California, especially because there was a guy over here a while back, an author, a kind of a com- columnist and a comedian, um, who wrote a book called Follow Me, and he stood, I think, in the middle of it might have been Trafalgar Square or somewhere like that, and he he wore a placard saying Follow Me, 
And before uh, he knew it, he'd started some sort of movement. And I've always been interested in in why people need, feel the need to be part of something. Well, me too. And that's why I wrote it, because I really don't understand. And like, <laughs> um, I mean, your guess is as good as mine. I think we all... You know, I think I think it's really easy to be manipulated, and I think well, California has traditionally been the home to a bunch of cults and uh, you know fringe religions. And Why is that? Is just because there's it's a, I don't know. It's far west. People move there. You know, getting expelled from other places. Um, it's a place where you can start over a lot. It's a place right. where there's not a lot of eyes on you. I mean, a lot of lo- space. Lots Especially of fringe religions the- have popped up in California right, traditionally. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, lots of cult leaders from everything from Scientology to um, Alistair Crowley had his, um, you know, he had a house in Pasadena, I believe, where, mm. I mean, I think that's correct. Yeah. So it's just a place that welcomes that. Um, um, but I don't know why people follow other people. Um, I have a friend who grew up in a situation like that. And, you know, his father was the leader of the group, and he was like, yeah, all these people listen to my dad. They all believe what he says, but I don't want him to, you know, he tells me what to right. do, and I don't want to do it. So he's my dad. This is stupid. But then, you know, he became quite upset that he, not his peers, not the his parents' peers, you know, he under he didn't question them because they were all part of this group. But when the kids sort of, like, I asked your dad what I should do, he was infuriated. Right. And I think we're all looking for something to believe for better, for worse, or for guidance. But I think it's just really easy to be manipulated and, you know. And, when, and you visited a commune, right, when you the did the research. Mm-hmm. What did you find? I didn't do any research. Oh, I've okay. been to this commune oh, that I, I was see, just right. speaking about. Right, right. I found it really strange. And, you know, it was a lovely place and everyone was so incredibly nice and I didn't realize I was writing about that when I wrote the book. Right, and then I okay. realized that's what I was writing about. But, right. Um, I uh, was just kind of blindsided, you know. Everyone seemed completely normal and nice, and they all had jobs, but they, you know, listened to somebody. And, yeah, yeah. You know, maybe that's a good thing for some people, but, you know, for, yeah. I wrote the book to try to understand that, and what I had to do was make him incredibly manipulative in order to make it reasonable. Right. Yeah. Um, let's go back to Visitation Street mm. real quick uh, before we finish up, uh, because Dennis Lehane... Uh, chose it for his personal imprint. Is that right? Is that the- yeah? So um, it was published. Uh, it was acquired by a uh, imprint at Harper Collins called Echo, hmm. and they sent it to Dennis for a blurb. Yeah, and he said he didn't want a blurb, but he also wanted to re- co-release it with his imprint at Harper Collins, and that was the second and last book he's ever done that with. <laughs> <laughs> That's quite cool. Then I know it's really cool. Yeah. Um, now it also told the story of two teens mm-hmm. and. We get teenage characters in Wonder Valley as mm-hmm. well. Is there a particular fascination with teenagers and their, I mean, and their, their kind of time of life? And it's so funny that, I mean, I hate writing about teenagers. It's so hard. <laughs> right. Um, I really struggled to write the teenager in Wonder Valley. It was James. It was brutal. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting time in life. Like, that's when, like, things can fixate. Like, uh, yeah. get fixed. Like... That if you make a mistake and actually, God, I think I wrote the same book twice. Like, if you make a mistake in those years, like that's kind of it. That's the person you are. Ren's done it. Right. James has done it in Wonder Valley. Ren, who's in both Wonder Valley and Visitation Street, has done it. And um, uh, Val in Visitation Street has done the same thing. And I'm just sort of like interested in like how malleable the teenage mind is and how um, you know, 
is it possible that the person you are as a teenager is the part person you are later? Or this idea of a teenager, for me at least, was always wanting to be part of the larger world and be, right. being an adult. And I think all these kids are sort of struggling with that. And I'm fascinated with that um, question because I know as a teenager, I only wanted to be an adult, but I also wanted to remain a little kid. So. Yeah, I think that's the, the that's the kind of, it's the kind of gray area, yeah. isn't it? Um, Ivy, I need to ask you what's next because you've written some stunners so far. Uh, no pressure. Oh, well, um, I'm writing you know. another book. We'll see. Um, it's set in Los Angeles. Um, it's a multi-perspective book. Go figure. Okay. <laughs> I have no idea how people do that with one character. It's <laughs> impressive to me. And it's um, you know, about women um, struggling in South LA. And there's a crime involved, but it's not a crime novel. I mean, it's not. There's no. Um, well, actually, there is a detective. My first detective. Okay. Um, so maybe it's more of a crime novel. So it's okay. Um, but I'm really trying to talk about the plight of disenfranchised women in Southern California, Southern Los Angeles. Right. And you you actually work in Skid Row, I right? I do. You, I teach creative. And writing. what's that experience like? Is it must be a really it's rewarding it's, experience, yeah. but also you must in- uncover some real kind of for want of a better phrase, kind of rough diamonds down there. Creativity, creativity must be quite Yeah, raw. it's insane. Um, it's not what you think. Um, no. When I worked in, walked in my first workshop, I was like, where are the writers? This, These people don't look homeless. Like, right, right. Homelessness takes a lot of different forms. And, you know, some, um, yeah, there's, you know, some of my students are in college and some of yeah. them have college degrees and some of them are artists and some of them are just really struggling. Some of them are prostitutes and, but um, one of them, who's a prostitute, uh, she had read Ulysses. So, I, I mean, she really read it. Um, this is, I'll finish with the story for you. She was okay. like, um, she was like, uh, we did a, a workshop on place and writing, describing places. And she is like, you know, sometimes you've read a book where you, you, it seems so vivid, you can't remember if you were there or not. I said, well, yeah, you know. She's like, like sometimes I forget, like that city in Ireland, what's the capital, Dublin? Like I read this book there and it's about this guy like walking around all day, but sometimes <laughs> I think I was there. And I was like, no way, Ulysses? She's like, yeah, that's the one. I was like, okay, I can't judge anybody ever again as long as I live. I'm humbled beyond all recognition. Oh, well, she's definitely worn up on me having read Ulysses. I think, so. uh, Ivy, thank you so much for joining me and us. Uh, have a great rest of your stay in London. Thank you so much for having me.